Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson, and in the last week, we have seen stories about murder hornets, UFOs, and polar vortexes in May. Needless to say, it feels like a good time to stay inside and listen to some great interviews on the show this week, and I have some great ones to share and so little time to chat in this intro because there's so much great conversation ahead, like my interview with Wendy Sukier, president of the Gun Control Coalition in Canada. We discuss Prime Minister Trudeau's recent ban of 1,500 different types of assault weapons and how there is much more to be done in this fight to keep us safe. The future is here now. I talk with Nancy White, CEO of Inagene Diagnostics, about how the science of pharmacogenetics is changing the way we take our medicine. Anne Brody brings us inspiration and intrigue for the latest releases for this week's Saturday Night at the Movies. Robin Alter, a clinical psychologist with the Psychology Foundation, joins me to talk about stress and how it's affecting our children in ways you may not think of. Finally, I spend some time with Andrea Gunraj, Vice President of Public Engagement at the Canadian Women's Foundation, to discuss why women are experiencing this pandemic quite differently from men, which includes an increase, sadly, in gender-based violence. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Tax Talk on 105.9 The Region. I'm Jim Lang. Does tax season make you nervous? Yeah, me too. That's where H&R Block Canada comes in. Join me and Lisa Gittin, Senior Tax Professional, for Tax Tuesday and Tax Thursday. From the options to file your taxes to common mistakes we all make, H&R Block Canada is here to help. Every Tuesday and Thursday morning at 9.15 on 105.9 The Region. Add some variety and spice to your time at home with a care package from Bass Pro Shop at Vaughn Mills Center. Build a flavor profile in your cooking with spice rubs. Satisfy your sweet tooth with fudge or candy. Fill that salt craving with pretzels and cheese curls, all while tackling some fun-to-do games. Celebrate Canada or bubble up with part of this surprise. This care package is courtesy of Bass Pro Shops and 105.9 The Region. Another lucky follower will receive this tasty and engaging care package valued at over $150. To enter, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, tag a friend, and you are eligible for delivery of a Bass Pro Shop care package. Contest closes May 14th. Last week, Prime Minister Trudeau banned 1,500 different types of assault-style weapons in Canada, and it has sparked intense debate. Founded in the wake of the Montreal Massacre in 1989, the Coalition for Gun Control was formed to support strategies to reduce gun death, injury, and crime. For almost 30 years, the Coalition for Gun Control has been working to make Canada safer and is supported by more than 200 health, crime prevention, victims, public safety, women's and community organizations from across Canada. Joining me now to discuss what we can expect to happen next is Wendy Sukier, President of the Gun Control Coalition of Canada. Welcome to the show, Wendy. Thanks for having me. So one of the things people came at me, though, with was... You know, this is this was done in an undemocratic uh, matter. What would you say to that? The 1995 legislation 
um, allowed for uh, weapons to be banned through ordering council that were not reasonably, that's an important word, reasonably used for hunting. And the reason why is because orders in council can be updated on a regular basis. But the legislation was clear. The intent was to ban military assault weapons. The orders in aligned either in terms of the timing or the approach, because of course, the Liberals ran on this as a platform uh, in the last election. The NDP, the Bloc Québécois, and even the Greens, I think, also advocated for a ban on, on uh, military assault weapons. And frankly, 80 to 90% of Canadians, depending on when you take the polls, um, have supported a ban on, on assault weapons. And support is now highest in, um, in uh, Quebec, followed by Nova Scotia. So I don't think there was anything um, untoward about this announcement. In fact, I think it was welcomed. Yeah, I think that uh, when, you know, certainly, you know, I know that we can live in bubbles. Uh, certainly, though, when I felt the news came out, my circle was seemed very happy that this had happened. Uh, I think the bigger question, though, is how do we now control what comes through the border, which is really an issue because our neighbors to the south are obviously, uh, their rules are quite different. The people who say you shouldn't have banned assault weapons because it does nothing to um, help smuggle guns are like the people who say you shouldn't cure breast cancer because we need you to focus on lung cancer. They're different things. So the intent of the assault weapons ban is to reduce the risk of mass murder. Okay. If you look across Canada, you look worldwide, most mass murders with guns are committed by legal gun owners and certain assault weapons like the R-15 uh, are featured very prominently. The, the, uh, Ruger Mini-14 used in the Montreal Massacre 30 years ago was also used in the massacre in uh, Norway and countries around the world, New Zealand is one of the most recent, have banned military assault weapons because of that risk. That is, is focused on a particular kind of gun violence. When we look at smuggled guns, the problem with smuggled guns is certainly a big part of gang-related violence, especially in urban centers even though a portion of those guns are also guns that were at one time legally owned. So to get to, to tackle the problem of gang related violence, you need to address smuggling and you need to address uh, the diversion of legal guns like handguns to illegal markets. But if you're concerned about domestic violence, if you're concerned about suicide, then you have to target rifles and shotguns. And that's why, legislation that was passed uh, last year, Bill C-71, is particularly important because it focuses on stronger licensing and regulation. There's no one solution to this complex problem of the misuse of guns. Right, and this is not going to solve every aspect of things, but it's a it's definitely a good start. Um, what would you say to people, though, who argue that this is taking away our rights and freedoms? I would say... Um, they live in the wrong country because there are no rights and freedoms when it comes to guns in Canada. In fact, the Supreme Court has said on more than one occasion, uh, Canadians don't have a right to bear arms. In fact, you know, our right is to um, freedom from fear. That's the universal human right that this is invoking. The, um, 
the global norms and conventions with respect to the rights of women and countering violence against women always put a priority on government responsibility to protect civilians from gun violence. The right is for us to be safe. There is no right to bear, bear arms. And particularly, let's remember when we're talking about military assault weapons, we're talking about guns designed to kill people as efficiently as possible. We're not talking about hunting rifles. We're not talking about the guns that farmers use to kill varmints. We're talking about military assault weapons. And Canadians have wanted these guns banned for, for 30 years. It's about time. And, and, that, and that's the thing. There is literally, and I just want to make sure that I am clear on this, there is no other purpose for these guns except to kill people, correct? That's what they're designed for. To, to suggest, you know, that you have a right to carry that. Well, you know, my, my, the counter argument is, well, I have a right not to be shot by one. Precisely. And, you know, I think um, while there are some Canadians who would advocate for a complete ban on guns, I'm not one of them. I, I, I'm not a hunter, but I understand hunting. I understand Indigenous rights. I understand um, that in rural communities, people need guns for legitimate purposes. Um, I do understand that there are target shooters and there are collectors who like these guns. But at the end of the day, I think most Canadians are now saying they put a priority on public safety. You know, the lives of our children are more important than people's hobbies. And it's not, I guess what, what I find so frustrating is it's not that this, this comes as any surprise. This has been the will of Canadians, the will of the vast majority of Canadians for 30 years. And, and I think that the bigger question is why has it taken so long? It's taken so long because 8% of the population that owns guns and probably an even smaller percentage that are sort of rabid anti-gun control gun owners have hijacked the public agenda, pure and simple. That's what um, most Canadians are not aware of. And that's really what um, you've experienced just in a little way because of your tweet, what I've been learning for 30 years. You speak in support of gun control, you're vilified, you're threatened and worse. And the majority of Canadians will say they support gun control in a poll, but they don't do anything about it. Gun owners, gun owners vote, they donate, they go to protests, they write letters, and they, frankly, some of them, get downright nasty um, because they're highly motivated and they, they care about this. I wish more Canadians cared as much about public safety, the safety of children, the safety of women, um, and were as highly motivated to fight for gun control as the opponents are to fight against it. Because you can bet the Prime Minister, Minister Blair, have received thousands of protest letters for every um, letter or tweet they have received in support. Exactly. So that leads me to my, my next question then, was a perfect segue. What can we do uh, to help further uh, gun control in Canada? I think it's really important for people to, to learn, learn the facts. So, you know, after the Parkland shooting in Florida, many Canadians were outraged. They marched in solidarity with, with the survivors in Washington, D.C., calling for a ban on the AR-15 in the United States. 
Air 15 was being sold in Canada. If they had put a fraction of that effort into supporting domestic calls for gun control, in writing their members of parliament, in making sure they understand the arguments, in talking to their friends and neighbors and mayors and you know faith leaders and union leaders and others, and, and communicating the fact that they really care about this issue, um, we'd be a lot farther ahead. I've often said that my problem, and most Canadians know about the power of the NRA, they have no clue about the extent to which uh, the gun lobby has hijacked the public agenda in Canada. I, did, I was on a call today with someone from the uh, Saskatchewan Wildlife Federation. Most Canadians don't know that the Canadian Wildlife Federation is actually run by the hunting organizations. Uh, and I was, uh, you know, because it has nice friendly pictures of animals um, in its promotional activities. But I was on a call today and until the very end, all the callers were opponents of gun control. And we know that that does not reflect, that does not reflect Canadians' values or opinions. We know that from the polls. But most Canadians don't pick up the phone, they don't write, they don't send money to their politicians, they don't make it clear that this is really a core value. And, and that's what we need to do. We need to mobilize. We need to mobilize just as hard as we did after the Montreal massacre. We need people to really speak up because you get the laws you deserve. And I'm afraid that, that you know, we're fighting to restore legislation from 1977. Bill C-71, which was passed last year, really just reinstates many of the provisions Pierre Elliott Trudeau introduced in 1977, some of which were taken away when the Conservatives dismantled many aspects of our law. People have no clue how, how, how much we have slid backwards in, in recent years. And I would argue it's because the silent majority has been silent and we need them to speak out. Okay, excellent. So where can people go to find out more uh, about your organization? www.guncontrol.ca is a, is a good start. Okay, excellent. Thank you so much for joining me today, Wendy. Yeah, in line and settle down. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Spring is in the air, so now is the time to add color in your world with Color Trends Paint and Decor Center. We have all your favorite paints and stains with curbside pickup available. We are located at 8000 Highway 27 and 7. Call us at 905-851-5570 or visit us at colortrends.com. Thank you for supporting small businesses like Color Trends Paint and Decor Center. Stay safe and we'll get through this together. Centro Panini is now open at the corner of Rutherford and Western Road in Woodbridge. Come and experience our delicious sandwiches at great prices. Mention 105.9 The Region when ordering and receive a 10% discount on your bill for a limited time only. Call 905-266-0984 to order for pickup. Centro Panini, the best deal in town for classic Italian sandwiches. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Well, baby, I'm the best. And you know it. Scares you to death. And it's showing, it's showing. 
I recently had the opportunity to try an at-home Farbocoach genetic testing kit and was curious to see if what I suspected about my intolerance for pain medication was backed up by science or was it all in my head as had been suggested by some. The results not only showed that I was correct in my assumption, but red flagged many other drugs that I metabolize either slower or quicker than most. I feel empowered with this new knowledge in my hands when it comes to my own medical journey, so I want to know more. So joining me now is Nancy White, CEO of Inagene Diagnostics. Welcome to the show, Nancy. Thank you so much for inviting me, Candice. It's a pleasure to be here. This is absolutely fascinating science. I'm so impressed by this, um, this test. So tell me a little bit about how Inagene came to be. Yeah, that's a great question. So our co-founder is an internationally renowned uh, leading geneticist, Dr. Kathy Siminovich at a Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. And uh, the company really was founded on the premise of truly bringing complex science to the general population. Um, people often get a little nervous around the word genetics because it is a complex and difficult science. But people, on the other hand, get very excited when they hear about the concept of personalized medicine. And we are coming closer and closer to personalized medicine in our society as the scientific advances of development of new drugs is rapidly advancing. But while we wait for these personalized medicines to truly arrive, pharmacogenetics is truly your first step to unlocking what is your personal predisposition to metabolizing certain agents? So your, your company looks specifically at uh, pain medication. We do, yes. So covering both mental and physical pain. Exactly. Um, when you think about the prevalence of pain, whether it's acute, short-term pain, or long-term pain, Everyone has experienced pain in some shape or fashion throughout the course of their lifetime. And as we look at the challenges of, you know, uh, impacting our society, the number one cause of long-term disability in our country is chronic pain. Uh, more and more people, particularly now during the time of this pandemic, are starting to experience emotional pain. And emotional pain encompasses many areas, things from not only depression, but things like anxiety, um, the loneliness of social isolation. Uh, there's a lot of talk among scientific experts about the mental health pandemic that will be following the, the COVID pandemic. Right. And, you know, my, my report came back and I, I think I had like, you know, six or seven um, antidepressants that were red flagged as absolute do not take uh, on my report. And that is really powerful knowledge because a lot of medications that people get are really a trial and error. You have to try it for a while to see if it works before you know. Well, this will eliminate a lot of that. A hundred percent. And if we go back to the example of depression, I mean, we all know someone in our lives or in our circle of friends that may have tried an antidepressant at some point um, for depression. A lot of times these medications don't work. And I would venture to guess that the majority of this uh, reason is, again, due to your genetic predisposition to be able to either metabolize or not metabolize. And when we talk to a lot of family health practitioners, 
the reason they pick one medication over another largely boils down to the experience they've had with that product in their practice. And if they've, you know, tried it in 20 patients and seem to get a pretty good response, then they feel comfortable about trying it again. But that doesn't take into account an individual's differences in how they process medication. So if you are needing a product like that, wouldn't it be great to know which one will and won't work for you? Um, for more than anything, the opportunity to feel better sooner. So there's two areas that I feel really um, would benefit hugely from this. Now, as a mother, I can't help now having the knowledge that I know, I can't help but think of my children and how perhaps they have the same uh, intolerances. Uh, for example, opioids for me, I metabolize super quickly. And I feel my children are the same. So it would be very powerful for them to know that. Uh, alternatively, I feel like our senior population who they are often taking a lot of drugs could benefit from this. You've hit the nail on the head in that this test is important for everyone. Um, I'll start on the spectrum of our youth and our adolescents it would be critically important to know what to use and not use in our children uh, for many reasons. Um, I'll touch on opioids because you happen to mention them. As you know, there is an opioid crisis happening in our country here in Canada. Several Canadians die every day due to opioid use. And these are not the, you know, people like to stereotype and think of, you know, the opioid use abusers who might be on the street. No, these people dying are people just like you or me um, who've been prescribed a medication and unfortunately have uh, become dependent upon them. So knowing how your body responds to opioids, which we do cover on the test, is critically important because I also have children and if my son broke his arm and we went to the hospital, I would prefer that he was given something other than an opioid um, to treat his pain. And there are several unfortunate documented cases where there are, have been uh, high school athletes who have become addicted and unfortunately um, have taken their lives uh, through the, the perils of addiction. But knowing what will and won't work for you is that first step in, again, feeling better sooner. Um, going to the other end of the spectrum where you talk about seniors, um, it is not uncommon for many seniors to be on multiple medications. This is a term called polypharmacy. And what becomes tricky in treating these individuals is when you're on so many medications, it's often difficult to ascertain which one is or isn't working. And then there becomes a hesitance to take away certain medications because it gets confusing to know which ones are actually working. So by again using a test like this, you can immediately eliminate the ones that you know your body doesn't process. Because again, more than just processing a medication, medications have side effects. And so you can be taking something that won't work for you, but you could still experience the side effects of using that product. So it's very complex, but through a simple test, you can certainly know what will and won't work. And, you know, uh, we touched on this a little bit in the pod, extended podcast that we did, but also I think the benefit for seniors is that 
you know, heaven forbid, you know, they start to have cognitive decline or un are unable to advocate for themselves, this report is there for their caregivers to use and for their doctor to access. So it's always there. A hundred percent. And your DNA never changes. So the minute you're born, your DNA is your DNA. So uh, it's important information to have to carry you through your lifetime. Okay, so if people want to access this test and try for themselves, I mean, I can attest to how easy it is. It was a quick swab at home, dropped it in the mail, and my report came to me online. Uh, but how can people go and sign up to get one of these kits? Yeah, it's a very simple process. You can go to our website, inagene.com, and you can simply purchase it online through our online store. It will be shipped to your home. Uh, you take the test in your home, you return it in the postage paid envelope, it goes directly to our lab in downtown Toronto. Uh, it is processed and uh, your results will be, uh, you'll be notified over email and you can access them through our secure online portal. And I just want to like, you know, let people know just from my own personal experience, I thought I'm going to get this, I'm not going to understand half of it. It's going to be all in medical jargon and I'm not going to get it. It'll be over my head. It's actually very easy to read, very easy to understand. And I love that it's something that I can literally give to my doctor as well to have in my files. We 100% encourage you to share your results with your healthcare professional, whether it's a nurse or pharmacist or physician. However, um, our goal in creating this report was to make it so you could understand it without needing a healthcare professional to help you interpret it. Um, some people don't want to share their results and that's their choice. But um, we've taken a lot of effort to make uh, it readable and I'm really happy to hear that feedback that you found it easy, so thank you. It's an, it's an amazing uh, test and great Canadian company and I'm so pleased to uh, have had you on the show. Thank you so much, Nancy. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. If you're interested in receiving personalized insights into how your DNA reacts to pain medication, Indigene Diagnostics is offering What She Said listeners 20% off of their own pharmacogenetic testing kit. It's easy to take, you don't have to leave your home, and your results are delivered quickly to your inbox so you can start to understand what medications will and won't work for you. Go to Inagene.com and enter what she said 20 at the checkout. This is my fight song. Take back my life song. Prove I'm all right song. Joining me now is Anne Brody with more entertainment. And Anne, between murder hornets, a polar vortex, and this pandemic, we may never go out again. I know, you just take your life in your hands everywhere you go, all the time. I'm going to start calling you my Anne on demand because you always have the best shows for people to watch. We have Spaceship Earth. This seems really That is pretty terrific. I'd heard of the biosphere before, mostly because it was a storyline in Frasier because Lilith went to it. But there were seven people in this massive uh, miniature Earth that was created in a big sort of bubble complex in Arizona. They had an ocean, an ocean floor. They had farm fields, all indoors, all sealed. So they went in, seven, uh, these seven people, they stayed for two years without ever leaving to study earth and also to study whether they could recreate this place out in space so that people could live in space. Anyway, as happens, very idealistic, but 
you know, there's always trouble. And uh, when seven people are locked together for that period of time and the leader, there were lawsuits, there were criminal cases, <laughs> arrests, but mostly with the leaders, not with the, the uh, you know, the, the people who were there every day. Fascinating stuff. You really would not expect this story to be so incredibly interesting. And there's this massive twist at the end that'll blow your mind. Uh, be sure to watch that. Martin Freeman again. I love him. Isn't he the best? He is, seems to be everywhere. Profession. He's everywhere and he can do anything. He is so impressive as an actor. It's that English stage training. He can do it all. Anyway, this is a very deep, dark drama called A Confession on BritBox. And he plays an investigator looking into the disappearance of a girl. So he, his, all his investigation leads to this cab driver who's actually played by Joe Absalom, who's the real sweetheart in Doc Martin. And um, so he, he investigates, he gives him all his evidence. The guy then confesses, takes him to another body, and then retracts it all. He's just playing this mind game with, with Freeman's character. Wow, it's insane. And based on fact. Okay. Lena Hetty, is she not from Game of Thrones? Yeah. Oh, okay. So she's in the yes. Yeah, yeah. A totally different role. She plays a uh, very hard-hearted immigration agent in Britain. And she's faced with this fellow who's actually walked 9,000 kilometers from Eritrea to get to England because he, he's in danger of being murdered at home. It follows him, oh my God, his journey, you know, starvation, thirst, walking. He forgot his own name. That's how delirious he was. He, his passport was lost in the ocean. So he gets there and he tells the story. It's so, he's so heartwarming. And well, I'm not going to tell you anything more. You really have to see it. It's basically a drama between these two people talking. She's questioning, he's answering. There's other stuff as well, but pretty okay. intense. Anything else we absolutely can't miss this week? You cannot miss Swallow, which is on uh, VOD. Haley Bennett, executive produced this and stars in it. She plays a wife who was born in poverty and she married a wealthy guy, sort of nouveau riche type, and moves into this splendid house. She's very unhappy. He's controlling. And so one day she sees a, a, you know, nut, a nut used in hardware. And she eats it. And then another day she swallows a pen. And another day a tool. And this is a real thing. It's called pika. And it's a cry for help, I guess, in someone who is just not experiencing life the way they want to experience it. She does a tremendous job. And there is some kind of explanation in it. Um, pretty crazy stuff and pretty good. Okay, the last one I want to touch on quickly is just Jenny Jones, because that, uh, that is a blast from the past. That name is, is quite familiar. So tell me what this, this uh, show is about. Okay, her talk show in the 80s was a trash talk show, ambush show. So she had a gay man come on who named his crush, and his crush came out the door, and he's this, you know, right-wing, straight young man who laughed and just brushed it all off as fun, and two weeks later murdered the guy. 
So the blame was squarely put by public opinion on Jenny Jones' shoulders. And of course, she denied everything. You can just see her lying on the stand, trial by media on, on Netflix. It's, it's horrific. And I actually saw her the other day. She's now doing recipes on YouTube. So, you know, the mighty of fall. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Anne. Lots of great watches this week. And we'll look uh, forward to seeing you again next week. You, me too, Candace. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Beretta beef, chicken, and pork are raised without antibiotics, hormones, and steroids. For the best of locally grown proteins, go to BerettaFarms.com and click on online shop. All orders over $200 receive free shipping within the GTA, and you can get 20% off your first order by using the promo code THEREGION. Shop Canadian raised meats and choose the quality of Beretta Farms for your family. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone they pay paradise put up a parking lot we are all dealing with an inordinate amount of stress right now and as adults it is easier easier or should be easier uh, to convey those messages or understand them for children and teens it's much more difficult Robin Alter is clinical psychologist for over 40 years, working in children's mental health. She is the author of two books, Anxiety and the Gift of Imagination, and the Anxiety Workbook for Kids. She is also a trustee with the Psychology Foundation for over 10 years, and is joining me today to discuss some of the ways stress manifests itself with our children and teens. Welcome to the show, Robin. Oh, thank you for having me. So, I mean, I know that I have two teens in the house and their response to this has been different than mine, to say the least. And so explain to me how sort of stress manifests itself differently in in younger kids and teenagers than it would in an adult. Well, we all have the stress response and that's the same for all of us, you know, or um, we panic, we get scared, we... we um, you know, the stress response was origin was is very hardwired. We've had it for thousands and thousands of years, and it was originally designed to keep us safe from real danger. You know, if we were running away from tigers or somebody was trying to eat us, <laughs> so it's designed to activate us, to get us moving. You know, to um, to stop doing normal things and get into emergency. You know, like an emergency activation. But in our life, in our daily life. Um, we don't usually face those kinds of immediate dangers, but the stress response is still the same. So we have to learn to monitor ourselves and calm ourselves down and say, really, you know, this isn't life threatening. Now we are dealing with a life threatening possibility here, you know, but it may not be immediate. You know, we, we, even though there is the danger of us becoming sick and possibly losing our lives, it's not actually immediate. You know, it's, it's a little removed. It's, you know, more, you know, more people in nursing homes are facing this than, than, you know, you in your home with your teenager and your child. So, you know, for, 
you know, as parents, we need to understand that what's activating our kids um, may not always be the reality of COVID. You know, what's activating our kids may be, you know, for the teenagers, um, missing out on what's happening with their friends, missing out with their activities. What's going to happen? Am I going to be able to get back to school? How far am I going to be behind, you know, with my studies? Uh, what's going to happen with my athletic activities? You know, like they're focusing on the immediate effects of all of this. And the same with younger kids. You know, younger kids are, you know, we're all cooped up in our houses. We are not getting the exercise that we're used to. Kid, younger kids especially need to run around, you know, and get rid of that excess energy. They may be faced with stress, you know, from their siblings, you know, the, the normal things that happen with siblings is usually the drama, you know, that kids are facing, you know, they have an older sibling who's tormenting them or taking their things away, you know. So as adults, we need to focus on what the immediate things are happening for our kids and you know eliminate or not focus so much on the things that we're focusing on you know we're focusing on where are we getting the food next week and that, is our I, food delivery going to come i think right? that's an excellent point because you know i'm concerned about you know uh, my income my my living arrangements food on the table these are very big broad concerns for me but they're not the concerns for my children at all uh, yeah. and i'm constantly surprised that some of their stresses are these very basic, simple, silly things to me, really, but are huge to them. And it's important to remember that it's huge to them. Right. And all of those things that you just mentioned, the things that are stressful for your children, you know, one of the number one approaches that we teach the Psychology Foundation, by the way, Psychology Foundation has these wonderful programs um, about how to manage stress. And we have programs for every age group, starting with age three, um, for, for, for middle school, for teenagers, and then we even have some for adults. And all that can be found on the Psychology Foundation website. But one of the number one strategies for any stress management is um, uh, problem solving. You know, so, you know, you're doing it at the adult level, but if we're going to help our kids deal with stress, um, then we need to focus on what's stressing them. And many of those things can be solved. You know, maybe the problem can't be taken away, but often it can be minimized or it can be made a little bit better. And the brain actually, once you engage in a problem solving um, process, the brain calms down a little bit. You know, there are actual changes occur in the brain that say, oh, okay, we're handling this, you know, and then the cortisol level reduces. The cortisol level is what comes into your body when you're stressed, and that's the thing that makes us feel yucky, you know, and we have to get our cortisol level down so we can get back to neutral. And how much do you think of a parent's stress? How much do you think we download that to our children, or are we, and maybe overthinking that a little bit? Well, I think that's a really good point. You know, um, I don't want to lay guilt trips on parents and make them make them feel more stressed about it. But you know, especially with young children, young children connect with our emotional state. So if you're in a agitated, anxious, you know, highly emotional state, your kids will pick that up. You know, so it's important to take care of yourself first. You know, and uh, calm yourself down. Um, 
you know, there's a wonderful book, which I love to, to uh, recommend by Robert Sapolsky called um, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. <laughs> so you can remember that title. It's pretty easy to remember. Anyway, he says zebras get stressed because they, um, um, you know, get chased by lions and tigers. But once the, the, the threat is removed, they go back to neutral. Human beings, we have a harder time with that because we're always thinking. We, we're not only stressed by what's happening now, we're stressed by what might happen in the future. We keep going over the past, you know, how we could have handled that differently. So we never let go of it, you know? So we have to learn to, to problem solve, to deal with it and let go, let go of the past, not worry about the things that we can't do anything about, deal with the present, deal with what we can, we can do, solve the problems as best we can, and get back to neutral, you know? And there, there are many, many strategies for all the different age groups in our program. By the way, our programs are almost free. You know, you can go to the website, download them. Um, they're Canadian made, they're, they're wonderful programs that have been used for hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of uh, people all over Canada are used, have used these programs, continue to use them. And, um, you know, they're, they're really um, very, very useful. So I, I strongly recommend your audience to uh, take a look at that. So one of the things you mentioned um, before we got on the air here is you said the stress can be beneficial. So how is, how is it beneficial to us? Well, think about it. If we had no stress, life would be very boring. <laughs> you know, the way to not have stress is just don't get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> I just want to say life has not been boring for about seven weeks right now. <laughs> so I think that we think this is going to be unending and it will end. Can history sort of teach us anything about this very highly stressful period about how people, the resiliency we might develop or where we might go with this? Well, I, I actually, I don't know if your audience is Canadian or, you know. Canadian, it's, yes. It's Canadian. So, you know, I'm in Toronto. So we lived through SARS. I remember feeling very reassured through that whole process because, A, the people in charge were telling us the truth every day. They gave us the numbers and people responded appropriately. You know, we, we made changes. We, we, you know, we didn't stay at home the way we did now because SARS wasn't as contagious, but we made changes in the workplace. We stopped shaking hands. We used Purell. We stayed uh, uh, distant from each other. And then one day the numbers started coming down. First they flattened and then they came down and we all got through it. And, you know, I think the same thing is going to happen here. We are going to get through this. There is, there is another side to this and we will have learned some great lessons. You know, we, we, um, we will have come through. And I think Canadians are responding appropriately. It makes me feel very good to be living in Oh, I'm, I'm very, very proud to be on this side of the border. <laughs> Our kids are doing a great job, you know, really, overall. They're rising to the occasion, you know. They, they, know, they understand that something unusual is happening, you know. My, I have a four-year-old grandson, and he says, you know, I like the corona. And I, we do a Zoom call with him every day. We read him a story. And um, he said, I like the corona. I said, what do you like about it? And he said, I'm getting a lot of work done. <laughs> I said, what kind of work do you do? He said, well, I'm flying people back home in my airplane. Ah, <laughs> uh, excellent. I love it. I love it. Okay, so um, remind me again of that website where people can go and get more information, please. It's called psychologyfoundation.org. 
It's the, um, the, the Psychology Foundation of Canada, but the website is psychologyfoundation.org. Okay, excellent. There's lots of good stuff on there. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. Okay, thank you. It was a pleasure. Put up a parking lot. <laughs> Stick around. More What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up on 105.9 The Region. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all the chains holding me. The COVID-19 crisis has undoubtedly been a major struggle for most of us as we grapple with being locked in our homes with spouses, children, and sometimes even aging parents. For some women, though, it's more than a struggle. It's a nightmare as they are now locked behind closed doors with their abuser. Joining me now is Andrea Gunraj. She's vice president of public engagement at the Canadian Women's Foundation. She has 19 years of experience in community-based work and a passion for innovative public education and nonprofit leadership for social change. Welcome to What She Said, Andrea. Thanks for having me. So why do you say that this pandemic is gendered? Well, I think it's really important for us to look at not just the biological or the health-based um, elements of this pandemic, but look at how we actually live it and experience it. And I think that's where um, the gendered elements become very clear, that women are experiencing this pandemic very differently, that all genders will experience it in their unique ways. But what we're seeing with women is um, really building on their existing issues and concerns. Um, we see an increase in um, gender-based violence. That's one of the pieces that we've um, heard more about, and we'll talk about that soon. But we're also seeing things like um, economic impacts that women experience because of their, their position in the workplace and in the workforce. Their lesser access to good-paying jobs and um, the kinds of roles that they tend to play in, in healthcare, their their predominance roles in there, their um, frontline roles that they tend to play in many different sectors. We're also seeing that women are even reporting higher rates of worrying about this, and I think that's really related to their caregiving role in our homes and in our communities. That they've got a lot on their shoulders right now, and. I think um, the pandemic is going to look different for different people. There's going to be shared elements and there's going to be our own unique experiences. And of course, women are not one big group. Women have lots of different diversities. And that is also a factor that we see that racialized women, immigrant women, um, newcomer women are experiencing this pandemic in, in ways that really relates to their vulnerabilities in our society. Okay. So... If we're going to go just talk about the violence aspect of it right now, because I imagine that that is almost unbearable for women right now who are locked behind doors with their abuser and never seemingly get a reprieve from it. So before the pandemic, sort of what are the statistics in and around uh, abuse that you, that you know of? Well, um, that's a really great question because I think people are talking about gender-based violence now in the context of the pandemic, but we have to remember that gender-based violence was really high um, always. And I think that we forget sometimes that before the pandemic, that every six days on average, a woman was killed by her intimate partner in Canada. So that's unacceptable. That's a high baseline rate. 
we see that um, you know women are saying that they experience violence at a high rate, almost 50%. Um, you see that in terms of not just physical violence, but also sexual violence, different forms of violence, the ways that it can play out um, in our lives. We're seeing that more than half of, of Canadians, 67% of Canadians say they personally knew a woman who experienced violence. Um, and I think it's really um, difficult to even measure sometimes the scope of it. It's so overwhelming because we know that this is a very underreported crime. All gender-based violence, but particularly domestic violence, things that play out in a home, in relationships, um, tend to be highly, highly under underreported. They say anywhere from 8 to 15 percent um, of the cases are reported. And then that big number, that dark figure of crime, they call it, is unreported. And it's very difficult to really then understand the scope. And I think those of us who are women, um, those of us who are trans, those of us who are non-binary, we understand that this rate is, is very true to life and we know how scared we feel on a day-to-day -day basis, how um, concerned we feel about the safety of ourselves and our friends and our other um, folks who are you know, at high risk of this violence. So it's no wonder that the, the rates then are increasing when we have this social isolation dynamic playing out and when we get stuck with people who are abusing us in our homes. And I think that that's, you know, women now, you know, for my, myself, you know, those numbers that you just shared are alarming. Uh, Pre-pandemic, I mean, I, th I thought about them, but to be fair, not, not like I'm thinking about them now. Oh. Uh, because when you start to actually con consider and empathize with somebody who is now trapped in a space with somebody who gets zero reprieve from the abuse, it becomes that much more... Um, uh, impactful. Yes. So a woman right now is listening, unfortunately, who may be being abused. Where can she turn uh, for help right now? Well, I think um, it's really important for us to speak to the fact that many services available for women, things like shelters, crisis lines, counseling programs, um, they're still open. And one of the things I've heard just this week, earlier this week, is that there may be a dynamic where an abuser is telling a woman, you have nowhere to go. And especially now, all the services are closed. Don't even try to get help. Um, and I just want to say straight up, that's a lie. That's a myth. Many of the services are still available. They may look different. They might be online. They might be by the phone but it's still possible for somebody to call. They don't necessarily have to go to 911 or go to the police. I know that's very difficult for people because there's lots of ramifications to that. You can still seek out support services. You can do it by phone, you can do it by text, you can do it online. Um, I think an important one in Ontario where I'm based right now is the Assaulted Women's Helpline, for instance. That is available in 150 languages. That's 24-7. You can call and say, hey, this is happening to me. You can call if you even have a question. I don't know what I'm experiencing, but it's not feeling right. Is this violence? What can I do? Um, I think that these services are so important because they're flexible and they take, they take from where a woman is. They take from where a person is. Um, and they just go from there. And it's not something that it's out of control for somebody who maybe calling the police or getting like that kind of authority involved might even make them feel more at risk. Um, so I just want to, you know, focus on that, that many of the services are still available and yes, they're struggling. Yes, they're having a hard time right now, but um, they're there.
The other thing I would mention as well too, um, you can actually find a lot of information online and if you have access to the internet right now, I would even say just go to CanadianWomen.org, that's the website for the Canadian Women's Foundation, and we have a list of services available in every um, province and territory in Canada. They're just a suggestion of places that you can go. And even if you call a place and you don't get the services that you want to need, you can ask and you might get a referral to something that is more appropriate for you or something in your region. So those are two just very simple things that I think um, people need to know right now. Okay, so let's talk about a little bit about those, that 67% that know somebody. Uh, and as you know, you're now sitting at home, you know somebody's in this terrible position, they may be too fearful to do anything or say anything. Um, what would you suggest women do who suspect that somebody is being abused at this moment? That's such an important question. Thank you for asking that. Um, I think that every single one of us, I could be overstating, but I don't think I am. Every single one of us at least knows somebody that we worry about. Somebody that we feel, mm, I don't know if they're safe right now. I think it's very important for all of us to do very, very simple things in terms of making sure that we know that we're sharing with other people that we're a safe person. I think there's no substitute at all or being a safe person. And what does that mean? For me, it means being proactive to say to all your family and friends, you're not making any assumptions. So every single one of them, you're saying, listen, this is real. I've heard about it. I've seen it. Maybe I've experienced it myself. And I want you to know that if you come to me and you say you need support or something is happening to you and you don't even know what it is, that I'm here to listen. I'm here to support. I'm not going to take over for you. I'm going to take your lead and I'm going to believe you. Even that thing about believing somebody is very difficult. Saying I won't blame you for this violence because I think there's such a blame mentality in our culture and our society. Even saying that I'm not going to blame you. I'm going to listen to you and I'm going to support you. That is powerful. I imagine uh, Canada where everybody says this to their family and friends. I can't see gender-based violence being as high of a problem if every single one of us made that proactive step, simple step, to say, I believe women, I believe you. If you need help, you come to me. I'm a safe person. I will do what you need me to do. So I think that alone can really help with that number that we know, we suspect, but maybe we don't feel we can say anything or maybe we feel uncomfortable. This is not something that you're taught how to support somebody in a dangerous situation. So I don't blame anybody for feeling uncomfortable, but I do think that we have a responsibility to break the silence and I think that's an easy way to do it. Okay, so going forward, this pandemic's not gonna last forever, uh, although it does feel like it for some of us. Uh, it is, you know, we are going to move on, but this violence is going to persist. Uh, mm -hmm. So how do we break through this cycle and, and, and sort of continue to champion women's rights and make this a better space for, for everybody? Um, I have a few suggestions. I, I think um, you're right. <laughs> this violence has existed before. It's going to exist now and perhaps in the short term really see a, a, like a bump, a spike. And then it's going to exist in the future. I think about young people who are witnessing this violence perhaps at home now, more so because they're isolated with perhaps abusive dynamics in their home. We know that young people who see this violence played out get that modeled for them or more likely to play it out in their own relationships when they grow up. So this dynamic could actually take years to play itself out. And it's all perhaps in this kind of hotspot moment that we're in. 
So I think it's really important for us to remember that services and supports, um, programs out there that are doing this work on the grassroots level, they're well positioned to do it. They're well positioned to change attitudes and behaviors and actually help people in violent situations right there. Um, they need to be supported. And I think that we need to really make sure that we give to them, first off, with our money, our talents, our time, um, and make sure that they aren't forgotten right now. And with the Canadian Women's Foundation, we're really concerned about our services that are working on this issue right now. We're really concerned about their ability to continue doing their, their good work. So I would encourage anybody who wants to support right now and doesn't know where to give, um, go to CanadianWomen.org. There's an emergency response fund that we launched to support programs like this and other programs to deal with gender equality issues. So even things like job training for women so that they have money to leave a, a dangerous situation. I don't want those programs to end either. They're all part of the spectrum of what makes people safer, what helps women get out of these vulnerable situations. So you can give to that fund. And I know this is a tough time financially. So every dollar helps. And even if you can't afford to give, but you know somebody who can, just be aware of this fund, that there's something going on specifically for those programs. That's number one. Number two, I think we really have to make sure that we insist that the people we vote for and our representatives see this as an important issue and prioritize it as a mandate. So I think that uh, you know we're seeing more and more about a national action plan on gender-based violence, it's something that the federal government has promised to do. Um, but you know, especially with this this pandemic, and perhaps it might not happen that quickly, or perhaps it might not get funded to the right degree. We can't allow that to happen. So I think we have to push for this for our representatives. We have to ask our representatives even before we vote for them, what are you going to do? on this epidemic that's a silent kind of echoing epidemic in the background. Well, even just with this, this current tragedy that happened in Nova Scotia, a, a perfect example of something that was born out of a misogynistic hate uh, uh, crime. In the, in, you know, it's just awful. And so if they can ban guns based on this, this incident, then why not go after you know, the, real, the real issue? Yeah. You're very right. It's all part of the spectrum of what we need to do. We need to have strict gun control. And we have to then also get to the root causes of this violence, the misogyny, the sexist behavior, the attitudes about gender that make it seem okay that men should use this in their relationships. And it does spill out beyond a relationship. So it's not like we can just be like, oh, it's between him and her. Oh, it's behind closed doors. It actually puts every single one of us at risk, every single gender at risk. Men died here too. You know, so I think it's really important for us to do that. And the National Action Plan on Gender-Based Violence is the one thing that I think is really kind of a, a key flashpoint that we all have to care about. And I think it's, it's one of these things that uh, has been talked about for many years, and we might see it happen now sooner. So let's push for it. Let's push for it. It's time that we did this in this country. Other countries have these types of action plans. Why not Canada? Canada could be a leader here. I agree. So we're going to, we're going to get up your, your website on the video that goes out on social. Uh, we're going to get up that national uh, link for that national action plan. Uh, we're going to keep the conversation going. And I thank you so much for joining me today, Andrea. This is a very important topic. Thank you for having me. That's it for what she said this week. Be sure to follow me on what she said, talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify for extended interviews and complete shows. I'll be back next week with more inspiring and informative content just for you.
Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.